You're listening to season three of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.9, Putting the Pieces Together, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan and three spaceships in a trench coat. (laughs) And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and ready with a theory. Mecha transformation sequences and magical girl transformation sequences are fundamentally the same. I will not be taking comments at this time. (laughs) Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 421 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Rev L, Sahil B, Cabraid, Chris, Travis, Aaron H, Christopher B, Perry R, Shay T, and Ermin E. This podcast would not be possible without your support. Help keep us ad-free by becoming a patron today at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. A subscriber at Subscribestar.com slash GundamPodcast. Or you can make a one-time payment on our Ko-fi page, ko-fi.com slash GundamPodcast. Speaking of Kofi, thank you. How am I supposed to say this? Fiai? Fiai? Anyway, <laughs> you bought us a coffee on Kofi. So thank you very much for your support of Mobile Suit Breakdown. This week, we are covering Gundam Double Zeta Episode 11 Activate Double Zeta or Shido Double Zeta. After the recap and our talk back, we have research about Bicha's choice of reading material. But first, let's tune our receivers to Radio Free Shangri-La. And now, the further adventures of Strobe Flanagan, Knight of Space! Space bulges and warps. Light wobbles, and the fragile facade of reality cracks open like a soft-boiled egg to reveal the gooey immaterium within. And from this gaping wound in the firmament leaps a sleek silver rocket ship. It is none other than the Earth Federation science vessel, Tomorrow, and her crew are the first Earthlings to explore this strange new dimension. The dashing captain, Strobe Flanagan, stands ready at her helm, accompanied by courageous first officer, Vale Meadows, and the tomorrow's tireless ship's computer. That was incredible! I've never experienced anything like it. Computer, where are we? This region of space does not match any known astronomical data. But that can only mean that we're in a completely uncharted region of space! Perhaps even in another dimension. (laughs) That's preposterous. So are wormholes, Vale. So are wormholes. But how are we going to get back home? 
when we don't even know where we are. Perhaps we can get back the way we came. Computer, what is the status of the wormhole? The wormhole is decaying. I estimate it will remain stable for the next three standard Earth hours. Then let's get going right now. Wait, Vale. Don't you want to explore this strange new part of space? No humans have ever traveled this far into space. Even a few hours of data collection with the tomorrow's powerful sensors could advance astronomical science by decades, maybe even centuries. Captain, I want to go home. I know, Vale. But this is our mission. We owe it to science and the Earth Federation. And humanity. Oh, do we? And I don't suppose this has anything to do with that message we received and your fascination with General Mackenharm. Their bickering is interrupted by a signal from deepest space. We have received a signal from deepest space. Let's stop bickering and listen. This is Mac and Harm of the League of Free Planets calling Strobe Flanagan. She knows my name. How does she know your name? My loyal Space Squires is being held captive aboard one of Admiral Evil's battle cruisers located in your vicinity. I beg you, rescue the noble. Captain, the wormhole is still closing. We don't have time for this. And besides, what does she expect us to do? Attack a battle cruiser in our unarmed science vessel? You know, Lieutenant Bale, you'll never find a man to marry you with that attitude. I... Uh, what? Don't worry, Captain. My programming is unlike that of other girls. With their keen scientific minds made up, the crew of the Tomorrow locates the enemy battle cruiser. It has a rather unique shape, doesn't it? It reminds me of an... Alexandrian Sphinx. What do you think, Vale? I guess it looks a bit like a Babylonian Lamassu, but Captain, I really don't think we have time- A comprehensive review of my database reveals it resembles a Minoan bull. Good work, computer. But suddenly- We've been detected. They're opening fire! Evasive maneuvers! Spotting a gap in the Minoan Bull's defenses, Lieutenant Vale Meadows deftly maneuvers the nimble vessel tomorrow closer to the larger ship's hull. Instructing Computor to keep the ship safe, Strobe and Vale infiltrate the enemy craft looking for the captive Space Squire and the means for their own escape. Get those interlopers! I never knew you were such a good shot, Vale! There's a lot you don't know about me, Captain. They don't call me Vicious Veil for nothing. Look, there! Behind that glowing red force field. It's some kind of alien being. It looks strange, but... I can sense the creature's noble nature. This must be the Space Squire we came here to rescue. Here, I think this is a panel that controls that force field. Do you think you can deactivate it? Sure. It's deactivated. Good work, Vale. But when we get back to the ship, I really think you should schedule a session with the Auger Automated Therapy app to help you deal with all of that unfeminine anger. Unfeminine- Look! The Noble Space Squire is approaching us. <sighs> Zabibi. Zabibi? Oh, you're welcome. Now let's get you out of here. But as our heroes prepare to escape the Minoan Bull, tragedy strikes. 
Captain Flanagan's communicator crackles to life. Captain, I have been hit. The ship is spinning out of control. Are you alright? I am Functional Lieutenant Vale. I will attempt to regain control. Tense moments pass. I am unable to regain control. No! Captain, we have to go help her. Maybe we can go steal one of those White Devil mobile suits and go after her. Zabibi? Ugh. Don't you see, Vale, that tomorrow is drifting back toward the wormhole. It will return to our solar system soon, carrying with it all of the vital data we've collected here. And Computer will finally be able to return home to look after her little sister. But we might never see Computer again. And I never even learned her name. My name is Alice, Lieutenant Vale. Alice C. Computesworth. Does the C stand for- Yes, the C stands for Computer. I'm going to miss you, Alice. Don't be so clingy. As their ship vanishes into the collapsing wormhole, our heroes are left trapped aboard the dastardly Admiral Evil's powerful Minoan Bull battlecruiser as enemy guards close in on them. What dreadful fate awaits them? Will Alice C. Computesworth find her way home? And how did Supreme General Macon Harm know Captain Flanagan's name? Tune in next time for more Intergalactic Chronicles of Strobe Flanagan, Knight of Space! And now the recap for Activate Double Zeta. The Hamahama receives an upgrade, a new shield with built-in guns, and Mashima is certain this new development will help him finally beat the Zeta Gundam. Kiara is still aboard, recording Mashima's grand promises for her report to Haman. She intends to launch with the rest of the Endress pilots, and despite her professions of reluctance, she brought a mobile suit with her. On the Argama, Judo goes looking for Eno and finds him bagging potatoes and wrangling chickens. He confronts his friend. Bicha and Mondo are the traitors, aren't they? Why won't Eno tell the truth? But Eno is adamant. His father told him to be loyal and to never betray a friend. Even when Judo points out that Bicha and Mondo's antics could easily get them all killed, Eno is unmoved. Across the ship, Shinta and Kum sit in Fa's room in the dark. Elle comes in to check on them and notices a small table mirror. Hey, I've been wanting a mirror like this, she says as she picks it up and starts to walk away with it. Incensed, Shinta and Kum demand that she put it back, that it's Fa's. They say that Fa is coming back, even though they seem to know it's not likely. Hearing the commotion, Rue ducks in, realizes what's going on, and accuses Elle of having no tact. In defense, Elle claims she was trying to get a rise out of the kids on purpose. There's no time for moping, after all. And Rue, more gently, tells the kids that Elle has a point. But they take off in a huff, leaving Rue alone in Fa's room, holding the mirror and thinking that Fa must have been a really nice person for Shintan Kum to miss her so much. As it happens, Shinta hasn't been moping. He's been coming up with a plan. He and Kum will go to Shangri-La and bring Fa and Camille back. There's just one problem. 
who will pilot for them. By chance, they are standing right outside of Goten's cell as they talk about this, and Goten calls them over, offering to help. I don't want to be your enemy. This is all my commander's fault, he tells them, saying he'll fly them anywhere they like. But once they let him out, he grabs Shinta roughly by the arm, insisting they take him to the mobile suit deck. At this moment, Ryu comes down the hall, sending Goten running. He collides into Ino, grabs the knife Ino was using to peel potatoes, and takes Ino hostage. Arriving on the mobile suit deck, Goten kicks Astonaji out of the core fighter and gets in with Ino. Judo is about to get into the Zeta, but Bright tells him to wait. The core fighter isn't armed, and they may be able to resolve the situation by other means. Goten's demands include normal suits and food, and Ru and Lina go to take these to him. However, instead of handing over the box of food, Lina opens it, and one of the chickens jumps out straight at Goten, sending him tripping backwards. She and Ru try to grab Ino and pull him out of the cockpit, but Goten gets it closed before Ino can escape. Over the radio, Goten begs his comrades aboard the Argama to come to his aid, and Bichan Mondo, afraid that the longer Goten is aboard, the more likely they are to be caught, decide to help the Axis soldier escape. They knock an Argama crew member unconscious and open the hatch on the mobile suit deck, allowing Goten to escape into space. Judo follows in the Zeta, along with Ru in her core fighter. Ino, hands bound, asks Goten to let him put on a normal suit. Unfortunately, while Goten is stuffing Ino into a normal suit, he is not paying attention to where they're flying. They crash into an asteroid. The cockpit springs open and both Goten and Ino are sent spinning off into space. Luckily for Goten, he collides with another asteroid and is able to cling to it. Serendipitously, he is standing there when Mashima, on his way to attack the Argama, flies by and spots him. Judo and Ru find the empty core fighter, but can't find any sign of Ino. Their search is cut short when Bright radios for Judo to come back. Mashima's squad have arrived, and the Argama is under attack. Kiara's mobile suit attacks the empty space around it and moves erratically. While inside, Kiara cries out, clutches her head, and writhes in her chair. Frustrated, Mashima pushes past her, and he's soon pleased to discover that his new weapon is too strong for the Zeta. Judo is struggling against the souped-up Hamahama and Ru decides the only way through this fight is for her to bring him the finally completed Double Zeta. With only one mobile suit to defend it, the Argama is in a particularly dangerous position, and Bicha and Mondo decide to abandon ship and try to get to the Endra. But they struggle to pilot the core fighter they stole, and are soon grabbed by Kiara. She flings their little ship into an asteroid, and Judo comes to their aid only to find himself outclassed by Kiara's mobile suit too. She slices easily through the Zeta's shield and grabs hold of the Zeta, leaving Mashima a clear shot. His new guns blast the Zeta's head clean off. Spotting Bicha and Mondo's ship nearby, Judo abandons the Zeta and squeezes into the already cramped core fighter. They are running from the Axis squad when Ru returns with backup. Ino is alive! He was picked up by the La Vienne Rose, and is piloting one of the parts of the new Double Zeta Gundam. When Judo pulls a lever on the core fighter he's in, it combines with two more pieces, the core top and core base, to form the Double Zeta Gundam. Stunningly fast and powerful, 
It dodges Mashima's attacks with ease, slices cleanly through an asteroid in its path, and withstands fire from Mashima's new weapon without a scratch. Returning fire, the Double Zeta destroys Mashima's new gun shield, taking one of the Hamahama's arms with it, and Mashima retreats. Fired up by his new mobile suit and cheered on by his friends, Judo returns to the Argama in the Double Zeta, towing the Zeta behind him. I cannot make up my mind whether I think this is a good episode or a bad one. Maybe it's a bit of both. Maybe I both like and dislike parts of it. I actually really like this episode. I feel as though it gets at a lot of things that are at the core of what Double Zeta is. Hmm. I'm, I'm going to need you to expound on that. <laughs> um, it comes down to, I think Double Zeta believes that life and people are fundamentally absurd. And this is the first episode where we see that Karasun is not just this very cool rocker chick who showed up to make Mashima uncomfortable. She and Mashima are actually foils for each other. They are both absurd in separate ways, and each of them points that out to the other and to the audience. And they're both parodic of a certain kind of, uh, of rival character, or of, of villain character, antagonist character. You know, Mashima with his obsession with chivalry and honor and being the like heroic crusading knight He's a parody of that type. Kiara Soon, though, with her uh, wildly vacillating emotions, the way she like starts talking about this super heady um, spiritual stuff once she gets into space. She's talking about how, like, my soul is the soul that will fly through space. <laughs> to which Mashima responds, who cares? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean... Mashima's fixation and obsession with defeating the Argama and the Zeta at this point is counterproductive, right? He was supposed to be establishing Axis support inside one, and instead he's chasing this ship, and he's lost countless mobile suits doing it, and he still hasn't managed it, and it's still his like one and only and most important goal. Now you say countless, but uh, I think Kiarasun is literally counting them. Oh, well, yes. Kiara is a parody of both the reluctant pilot type which is a type we see in protagonists, right? All the time. Uh, you know, and Mashima points out, she says things about how she doesn't like to pilot, that it exhausts her, that it tires her out, that she doesn't really want to do it and she tries to avoid it. And he points out, isn't it weird then that you are a pilot? <laughs> uh-huh. Like, why are you a pilot then? Because this is a kind of thing that we hear, you know, various pilots say... <laughs> within Mobile Suit Gundam, right? Oh, I hate being a pilot. Oh, you know, I'm practically comatose after I pilot. I hate this. I don't want to do it. And then constantly getting into the mobile suit and going out there. Kiara even kind of points to this when she talks about how she gets too excited when she gets into the mobile suit, right? She hates it. She doesn't want to do it. But then she gets into it and she's like really into it. And she's going over the top. She's burning up. I'm burning up. I hate you. I hate piloting. I love piloting. She even does that kind of Camille type thing where she's like, this is all your fault. This is all the fault of mobile suits. She's writhing around in her cockpit in all these like weird positions in her chair, clutching her head <laughs> and saying, I can't breathe. I'm dying. But 
it's all voice acted and animated in a way to be a parody of that in previous series. Because I think when we saw that from Cyber New Types previously. Four, especially Rosamia as well. It felt dramatic. It felt sad. It occasionally verged on ridiculous, but it never quite got to that point. And it was clear that was not the intention. It was clearly meant to be disturbing mm-hmm. and sad. Here, we have it portrayed in such a way as to say, like, are you kidding me? <laughs> are you for real? Yeah. I don't know if this was intentional, but there is another thing from Zeta that was like serious and tragic and here is just sort of goofy and has no consequences and is played for laughs, which is crashing their little core fighter into an asteroid. Like that happens in Zeta and Katz dies like really for real dead. Uh, It happens here and Eno and Gotten just get thrown out of the core fighter uh, completely unharmed. Yeah, well, and circling back to Kiara and how she and Mashima are sort of foils for each other. We even have her parroting what was perhaps a kind of sexist justification for the cyber new type drama. Oh, well, women are complicated. And Mashima pushes back against that. He says, no, you're complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I necessarily trust Mashima's judgment on women. No, if there's any character who has terrible judgment about women, it's Mashima. But it does feel like a stereotype. For her to say, oh, well, women are complicated and that's why I'm so emotional and why even though I hate it, I also have to pilot. And I appreciate that this show is willing to sort of turn the camera back on itself and say, this is all absurd. You know, there's a moment at the end of the episode where Judo is like, can you believe how powerful the double Zeta is? And it feels like he's talking to the audience. Yeah, he looks directly at the camera and he says, like, have you ever seen a more powerful thing? He breaks the fourth wall and addresses us directly. Again, because Double Zeta knows that it's absurd. I kept thinking throughout this episode, like, it is funny. Absolutely, it's funny if you read it as self-parody. But I'm never entirely certain that the show is uh, in on the joke. Interesting. I felt like it was. There's this whole sequence where uh, Judo has done an impressive thing, and then it cuts to, like, every one of the characters going, Wow, Judo, you're so great. Uh, And then you get the scene with Bright and Lena talking in sort of serious but vague terms about the challenges that face Judo. And this is such a cookie cutter obligatory scene. And it like doesn't go quite far enough in the direction of parody to make me convinced that it's intentional. But it's also far enough. It's in the gray zone where I can't be certain. And this happens a lot throughout this episode. I agree that it's not perhaps way over the top. Uh, However, I think it might tie into my second big thing that I wanted to talk about in this episode. We come back to this idea of miscommunication and misunderstanding. Although in this episode, it is often the ways in which we fool ourselves positively. And what does that mean? Well, for example, Mashima happens upon Goten completely by chance. He didn't know Goten was going to be there. He wasn't out looking for him. Goten interprets Mashima being there as, oh my gosh, you came for me personally. My commander came himself to like retrieve me. Wow, I'm so moved. I I feel you know, renewed devotion. Uh, and then again later, 
you know, Judo knows or suspects. He doesn't know. He suspects what Bicha and Mondo have been up to, but when he finds them stunned in their core fighter after almost being killed by Kiara, he's like, oh, you guys came for me. Cool, <laughs> thanks. The thing about that is this episode leans so heavily on coincidence to make the plot work, to set up everything that happens. And it's not just the two that you identified, you know, there was no particular reason why Shinta and Kum should have been talking about their plans to steal a launch and go back to Shangri-La if only they could find a pilot right out front of the room where Gotten is being held captive. The unlikely coincidence is the connective tissue in this episode's plot. And they never quite, like, look to the camera and wink to mm -hmm. make it clear that they know that what they're doing is sort of bad writing. I mean, I get what you're saying about it being bad writing. In a more serious or dramatic show, I would agree with you. But that connective tissue of happy coincidences is almost emblematic of certain types of comedies, particularly when I think back on old theatrical comedies, you know, some of the Shakespearean stuff and some later stuff as well. There's so many happy accidents that string together like oh, and the young man in disguise is actually the long-lost son of so-and-so, and, -so, and <laughs> the baddie is revealed, and everybody gets married. And <laughs> yeah, that's valid. I'm not saying the coincidences make it a bad episode necessarily. Like I said at the beginning, I can't make up my mind over whether I think this is a good episode or a bad one. I like that you brought up the rich theatrical narrative tradition that makes use of these happy coincidences, because one thing that those sorts of, say, Shakespearean plays always do really well, and that this episode also does and also manages to pull off, is uh, spreading a whole web of disparate plot threads that don't seem to relate to each other, and then, by the end of the episode, bringing them all together into one climax. And this episode does that quite nicely. And the way it does that is actually represented by all of the different machines, because you have these three components, I guess really four components. I was going to say three because the core top, the core base, and the core fighter all go together to make the double Zeta. But the fourth component is Judo. So you have the four components, each uh, the result of a disparate storyline, all woven together and forming one super cool, powerful robot at the end. That's narrative. <laughs> yeah, we get some nice animation related to that sequence. It's definitely the shiniest <laughs> and cleanest animation of the episode is oh, that transformation yeah. sequence, which I assume we're going to see reused. <laughs> you don't spend that kind of money animating that kind of sequence if it's not going to be used a bunch. They also do something that I'm not sure we've seen since first Gundam, which is they have uh, a painted still for the end of the episode mm -hmm. that's quite lovely. Yeah. Uh, it's got the double Zeta in a very heroic sort of pose, you know, looking up and to the side into the distance. Uh, and it's in the foreground and it is holding the hand of the Zeta, which has at this point been beheaded, but which is sort of slightly to the side and in the background. Again, more passing of the torch iconography. Mm-hmm. Also, I can't remember if I've addressed this in any of my like big sweeping attempts at historical recaps, but um, there was a period of time in the like 60s through 70s, maybe into the 80s, uh, where there were a lot of like major international news hostage situations. Oh, yeah. In 85 alone, there were like six or seven uh, airline hijackings. 
So this whole thing of Goten taking a hostage, you know, demanding normal suits, demanding food and stuff be brought to him. Uh, the pattern of this is very reminiscent of major hostage situations that would have been in the news all the time. Uh, well, all the time. You know what I mean. <laughs> uh, around the period that Double Zeta was being created. Also had a little bit of a flashback uh, watching Eno. I don't think it actually shows him peeling the potatoes, but he's like bagging them and he has a knife. So I assume he's going to be doing some potato peeling. Uh, gave me flashbacks to hearing my grandfather talk about when he was in the Navy <laughs> and peeling potatoes was a common punishment <laughs> for all sorts of infractions. <laughs> I assume that is still true today, but if we have any listeners in the Navy who can enlighten us on whether or not potatoes are still being peeled by hand, we'd love to know. The final big thing that I wanted to talk about in this episode is it seems that this episode and probably future episodes are going to deal with the idea of what friendship is and what it means to be a good friend. Uh, I am beginning to suspect, we'll see if I'm right, that Double Zeta is going to be a lot of meditations on how to grow up, sort of how to be a good adult as you're making that transition from being a child to being an adult, like what that means and how to do it, uh, and sort of some of the options available to a young person in that situation. Because we have poor Eno. His relationship to his father is not described. We don't know what the deal with his father is or where his father might be. But his father at least made a strong enough impression that the advice to never betray a friend and to always be loyal to your friends is something Eno holds very dear, even though, as Judo points out, Bichan Moto's actions could get them all killed. You know, they're clearly not really worrying about their so-called friends, but Eno can't bring himself to betray them. Yeah, Bicha and Mondo couldn't possibly be less worried about what's happening to other people. Like, they're not worried about what's going to happen to Gotten until he starts escaping, and they're worried that he'll give them away. They're not worried about what's going to happen to their friends. They're not particularly worried about what's going to happen to Eno. And of course, it's Eno who ends up being the first one to uh, be put directly in personal danger as a result of Bicha and Mondo's uh, selfish actions in the prior episodes. Admittedly, in this one, it wasn't Bicha and Mondo who let Gotten out of jail, but they are the reason he's on the ship in the first place. And they knock someone unconscious so that he can get off of the ship. Absolutely. They are ready to abandon the ship and take a core fighter with them when it seems like things are not going the Argama's way. Yeah, their willingness to take direct action is escalating. As long as we're talking about Eno, I do have an Eno-related uh, point to make that I think goes into the column of, yes, this show does in fact know that it's engaged in self-parody and is doing so intentionally. And that's when he winds up on the La Via and Rose, and he's talking to the uh, young officer there, whose name is Emery Ounce, by the way. Well, I love her. She has a very cool design. Possible cosplay <laughs> for the future. But... On the Livia and Rose, Eno's entire point there, all of his lines, are just to repeat something that she just said, but in a disbelieving voice. <laughs> Unless you think I'm exaggerating, I wrote down what he says. <laughs> when he wakes up, she says, you're on the Livia and Rose. And he says, the Livia and Rose? <laughs> Later, she says, this is our new mobile suit. And he says, new mobile suit? 
then she says, the double Zeta. And he says, the double Zeta. <laughs> and the last thing in the scene is somebody says, the Argama is under attack. And, you know, it's like the Argama. <laughs> he also actually does what Judo credits Bichan Mondo with. He flies into battle, putting himself in danger so that he can help Judo. Ino is a good boy. Oh, man. The ridiculousness of Bichan Mondo having to get out of the core fighter while it's being chased by Mashima and the Hamahama. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Hey, wow. hang on. If you were going to say that someone was a good boy in Japanese, would you say Ino Shonen? I'm wondering if that's the secret origin of his name. It's just Ino? like he's the good one. The Ino one. I mean... It might be, to be honest. He is the good one, right? He yeah. is, he's the nicest, kindest, most responsible of just, their crew. He's the only one who's like concerned with doing good in an abstract kind of sense. Related to that concept of friendship and of what it means to be a good friend, I come back to the scene in Fa's room. I'm glad you came back here. I wanted to talk about this too. Because after everyone has left, Rue, who is clearly thinking about how attached Shintan Kum were to Fa, are still to Fa, sort of comments to herself like, wow, Fa must have been a really good person. And then to show us that we're not going to be too serious, she sticks her tongue out <laughs> at herself in the mirror. Mm -hmm. And perhaps I'm reading too much into this, but I interpreted the scene as Rue sort of acknowledging that there was value in what Fa did and who Fa was to other people but that it's absolutely not something that Rue herself is going to emulate or try to be. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I also read a lot into this little interaction, so I don't think you read too much into it. Um, but what I focused on was actually the difference in the way that Rue is portrayed, depending on who is writing her. We've noticed in the past, uh, especially for female characters, especially for Fa, that the portrayal tends to differ a little bit depending on whether Endo or Suzuki is writing the episode. This is an Endo episode. Um, and we've identified Rue as a character type that we might call the cool girl or the not like other girls girl. And this type is one that both appears in fiction and that people sort of construct themselves to fit into in the real world. And it's very consciously constructed in both of those contexts to appeal to a male audience. There's a degree to which within patriarchal societies, male attention, male approval, these are currencies, these have value. And so you're always going to have people who consciously or subconsciously you know, pursue <laughs> that currency. And that currency can be obtained in lots of different ways. Uh, one might say that there are different flavors of that currency, and the cool girl gets a, a certain kind of it. A lot of that comes from the uh, presentation of self as unflappable, not serious about anything. This is what Rue is talking about in a prior episode when she says, a cool girl who messes up from time to time is totally adorable. Both writers do portray her this way, but when Endo is writing, I get a sense that he's rather enamored by the coolness. He's very into that surface aesthetic, and we see a lot of portrayals of that, like we do in this scene, where she shows all of us that she's not taking any of this too seriously. She's not getting sentimental about it when she does the little tongue sticking out bit. When Suzuki is writing her, on the other hand, you get a sense of competitiveness and insecurity from it. Well, <laughs> I think as a woman, she's likely much more conscious of the fact that the, the whole not like other girls shtick 
puts women in competition with each other. It's entirely about defining yourself in opposition to other women. Like, oh, other women are terrible, but I'm not like them. It is at its base nature competitive and insecure in that it treats, again, male attention as this very finite resource which needs to be hoarded and competed for. So these two different portrayals of Rue represent an insider-outsider view of the cool girl. Endo, as a man, it is having the effect it's supposed to have on him. <laughs> She's just so cool. Ugh, so much more to talk about here, and it's so complicated. And I kind of <laughs> want to do it and kind of don't want to do it. It's one of those that uh, in some ways boils down to, well, I live in a society, so how can I know which things I do because I personally like them, feel them, want to do them? And which do I do because I have been socialized to want them to behave this way, to do this thing, you know, to value X, Y, and Z. Uh, and ultimately, we can't know. Yeah. We can just try to discern our true likes and dislikes and go from there. And in a show that, as you pointed out, is very much about growing up and deciding who you're going to be, but also about being part of a team, being part of a group, and trying to figure out how you're going to fit in with your friends. Those are really important questions and really difficult ones. What do I want and what am I doing because the group expects it of me? And the things that the group expects from you are not inherently bad. There's benefit in being authentically true to yourself and individualistic, but we also live in a society and Judo has friends and he's not on his own and he can't be. And sometimes a person is going to behave in a way that is consistent with social expectation because that's who they are. I mean, the, the trick is, you know, people being able to make their own choices, whether those choices conform or not. Anyway, we, we've departed somewhat from the text. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to highlight Elle's role in this scene, because Elle doesn't have much of a role in this episode overall, but she does have this one little bit here. And it sets up a really important contrast between her and Rue. When Elle comes into the room and she grabs the mirror and she's like, ooh, I'll take this, it feels like a believable bit of, I mean, looting, basically. Uh, but then when Rue is chiding her, Elle's like, no, the kids are depressed. I need to snap them out of their funk. I was like trying to get a rise out of them. And I might think that this was just a self-serving justification after the fact, except as Lena has told us in the past, Elle has good intuition. And Elle, maybe not as much as Eno, but more so than a lot of the other characters, is committed to the overall like health of the group and doing what needs to be done. And so I really believe that Elle went in there with a plan to, you know, snap the kids out of their funk and get them back into the life of the crew. Rue, because she's the cool girl, doesn't care that much about what other people are thinking or feeling. We brought up Ino and we brought up Fa, and I don't think this is coincidental. In many ways, Ino seems to be taking the place of Fa as a person on the crew who is willing to do whatever tasks need doing. He's not above anything. He's not too cool for anything. You know, Judo points out, oh, somebody else... One of the girls can peel potatoes. <laughs> and Eno is like, this needs to get done and I'm going to do it. Something that does not get dealt with very much in this episode, but where my heart breaks a little bit, is that Shintan Kum have lost the closest thing to a parent they had. You mean Quattro, right? 
I've lost any hope whatsoever that the show is going to drag Quattro for adopting and then dumping some kids on a military vessel. It does not seem that the show is ever going to hold him accountable for that in any way. And I meant Fa. Because now what? They've got Lena? She's what? 11? Or 10? <laughs> I do like Rue, though. Like, don't get me wrong. She's a fun character. I think she seems like a great character. Just analyzing her in this way gives me a lot of uncomfortable feelings about my own changing relationship with, you know, womanhood and stuff. And being cool. And trying to be cool and wanting male attention or not wanting male attention. And, you know, it's complicated, listener. Well, let's talk about something uncomplicated. Mobile suits. I know many listeners will recognize this as a common refrain from me, but I like the parallelism in Judo and Mashima's stories here, because both of them get a cool new upgrade in this episode. Mashima starts the episode with giving the Hamahama a new shield slash gun. It's a gun shield. It is very quickly established to be a powerful, effective shield. It shrugs off hits from the Zeta's beam rifle, and its beams are capable of blowing up the Zeta's head. And then Judo gets his upgrade, and it's so much more powerful. He just blasts the shield into oblivion, and the beams from the shield barely scratch the Double Zeta's armor. Yeah, the turnaround on that is so fast. This is also the first time that we've gotten a new mobile suit entering the picture that has been so overwhelmingly powerful. Even when the Zeta Gundam was introduced in, what was that show called? Uh, oh, I can't remember. Ho, 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 ho. Anyway, even when the Zeta Gundam was introduced, it was more powerful than the Mark II, but not so much more powerful. And it was approximately the same level of power as, say, the Gaplant or the Masala. Camille was catching up. Judo is getting ahead. For now. Is La Vienne Rose an Ayug ship or an Anaheim Electronics ship? I think it's an Anaheim Electronics ship. Yeah. But really, what's the difference? Mm, uh, Anaheim Electronics can build for both sides. Yeah, I liked the pointed mention of Anaheim Electronics in case we forgot. In case we thought maybe Ayug was doing their own mobile suit development. No, as a matter of fact, large corrupt corporations that play both sides against the middle. Still the pinnacle of mobile suit technology. Does the AE at the beginning of AUG stand for Anti-Earth or Anaheim Electronics? One final question, mystery consideration. The show keeps making a point of the fact that Mashima has sniffles or allergies or something. <laughs> There's a shot of him a couple episodes ago where he's sitting in his cockpit and he sneezes and has to blow his nose. That is true. Uh, and it you know, it just feels sort of strange. It's there. It's not very dignified. <laughs> I don't know if that's the point. And then in this episode, after Goten, half pretending, half being serious, describes how terrible Mashima is, we get a shot of Mashima sneezing on one of his guards. Well, so this is a thing that you like, your nose itches when someone is talking about you. Oh, yeah. Is that a thing in Japanese? It's just been funny. <laughs> is he perhaps allergic to roses? <laughs> That would be hysterical. <laughs> right?
And now the research on Beach's choice of reading material. Early on, when Gotten's escape has been discovered and the Argama is on high alert, Beecha appears for the first time in this episode in classic Beecha fashion. Alarms are blaring, the ship is shaking, and he is lying on his bed eating a bar of chocolate and reading a magazine, apparently without a care in the world, until Mondo fetches him. After that, it's a non-stop roller coaster of treachery, bad planning, and good luck that doesn't end until he's jumping out of a core fighter and into deep space as the Hamahama sprays beams of death all around. But let's not focus on all of those exciting, important parts of the episode. Let's focus on that five-second-long peek into Beach's downtime and the magazine he's reading. Most of the magazine's cover is cut off by the headboard on Beach's bed, but we can see enough to read the title, Star Luster. I'm pretty sure that's supposed to be star luster, like the shine or the glow of the stars. Not a person who lusts after stars, but it really could be either. <laughs> that's the fun of wordplay. Anyway, at first glance, I thought that maybe star luster was meant to be a universal century equivalent of legendary and groundbreaking science fiction magazine Starlog. Starlog was one of the first magazines to cover the burgeoning science fiction and fantasy movie and television industry. And if you remember way back in episode 1.36, our guest consultant, Sean DMR, talked about how an advertisement for Barbarella in the August 1978 issue of Starlog might have inspired the designs for the Zaku and the Goof. But by now, the retro video game enthusiasts among our audience must be shaking their heads at me in disappointment because, as I quickly discovered, Starluster is not a made-up Universal Century-era magazine for boys with an unhealthy fixation on stars. Starluster is a very real Our World video game. It was released just five months before this episode of Double Zeta aired, in December 1985, for the Nintendo Family Computer, more commonly called the Famicom, and, better known in America, as the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES. The game was published by Namcop, the recently established home console games division of video game makers Namco. Starluster was a first-person space combat simulator that put the player in command of Gaia, a space fighter, in dogfights against enemy squadrons. The dogfights took place in a three-dimensional space environment that the player views from within the Gaia's cockpit. So if you've ever played games like X-Wing, Wing Commander, or the more modern Elite Dangerous, it's like a primitive version of that. These dogfights are the core of the game, but they were also nested within a larger strategic game, wherein the player warps between locations in the galaxy to either repair and refuel at friendly bases, or to engage enemy forces. Time passes every time you warp, and enemy forces will attack your allies if you don't stop them, adding a nice dynamism to the gameplay. Starluster was not the first game to feature three-dimensional dogfighting with a first-person cockpit view. Actually, it isn't even close, because this genre is older than video games themselves. You can draw a straight line from the kind of mechanical flight simulators that were used to train pilots to the electromechanical flight simulator games that proliferated in arcades as early as the 1960s. 
But Starluster was the first such game on the Famicom, and it was an innovative and well-executed example of the genre that took advantage of the Famicom's hardware capabilities to offer a better-looking and smoother-playing iteration. The gameplay, including both the action-oriented combat and the strategic galaxy view, were major inspirations for Nintendo's tragically cancelled 1995 space sim Star Fox 2. And here I'm using major inspiration as kind of a euphemism for it's the same thing but with some tweaks and pretty new graphics. However, Starluster was considered too difficult for the middle school aged kids who made up the bulk of the Famicom's audience and it sold poorly. Critics praised it, but audiences were more lukewarm. One contemporary magazine that calculated average review scores for games by aggregating the ratings provided by its readers awarded Starluster 16.98 points out of a possible 38. Better than average, but no masterpiece. However, three months after this episode of Double Zeta aired and eight months after Starluster, Bondi released their own take on the first-person space combat sim. This game received mixed reviews, including an even worse 16.67 out of 30, a whole 0.31 points lower than Starluster, but, and this is perhaps the crucial metric, it sold. It actually sold really well. It sold 400,000 copies, and it proved to Bondi that there was something to this new video games thing after all. And that game, dear listeners, was Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Hot Scramble, the first Gundam game released for home consoles. And many years later, in an interesting twist, Starlust publisher Namco and Hot Scramble publisher Bandai would eventually merge, forming Bandai Namco Holdings in 2005. Which means that today, Starluster and the slightly younger and much more popular Zeta Gundam Hot Scramble are kind of like step-siblings. I wonder if they get along. Oh, and one more thing about Hot Scramble. This doesn't have anything to do with anything, but it's a fun bit of trivia that I stumbled across in my research and I wanted to share it with you. Hot Scramble's sound was coded by Onogi Nobuyuki. He's sometimes called the father of video game music. Onogi started out as a sound designer at Namco. He was Namco's first dedicated sound designer, and he made his name designing and programming the sounds and music for legendary games like Galaga, Mappy, Xevious, and Pole Position. And then he left the industry in 1993 to take over his family's miso shop. But getting back to Starluster and Gundam, this might just be a quick visual gag that amused whichever artist was drawing the keyframes for this scene. But the magazine is right in the foreground, and the five seconds that it spends on screen is more than enough time to read it. Add to that the fact that no one is saying anything until Mondo shows up, and it starts to look like this is a detail that keen-eyed members of the audience are supposed to notice. And of course, Gundam Double Zeta's audience of space combat enthusiasts would be exactly the target audience for a game like Starluster. It also proves to be a rather elegant bit of foreshadowing. Bicha here is poring over what is probably supposed to be the manual for a video game where he gets to be the pilot of a space fighter. And by the end of the episode, he is going to become the sort of pilot of what is more or less a space fighter.
Next time on episode 3.10, Hostile Takeover, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 12, and Curse Your Sudden But Inevitable Betrayal! No more surrogate parents. Shinta and Kum have evolved beyond the need for surrogate parents. Coup de tatas. Oh no, I'm going through a Minovsky particle tunnel. You're breaking up. No, Glemmy. Uh-oh, Glemmy. Nah. Zedazaku, Zedazaku. Jeez, everyone, give Eno a break. Sensations of the battlefield is quite the euphemism. And Glemmy is going to punish us for our superficial analyses. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music this season is New York City, instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La included Deep in Space Synth Loop 120 BPM by Alexander. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, on Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinion with the world by shouting, Zeta's head getting exploded is fitting punishment for its criminal lack of a bright red chinny-chin-chin like all the other Gundams have. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from Dafton in the MSB Discord. Thanks, Dafton. And thank you for listening. Yours was very good. Thank you. Yours was better, though. It's not a competition, Tom. I just need them to love me better. Wait, hang on. We're allowed to do that. <laughs> we are allowed to have short researches that are fun sometimes. Even though, as Judo points out, even though, whoa, my voice sounded so different. Coup de tatas. <laughs> In case you were wondering, that is absolutely a Tom pun. Coup de tatas. I'm amazed I got through that without giggling. Don't pretend it's not good. It is good. Just the more I say it, the I get inured to it, of right? Course, like it's, of course. The first couple times trying to say it, it was impossible. I couldn't get I couldn't even get it out. Coup de tatas. <laughs> but that can only mean that we're in a completely uncharted region of space. This is an amazing thing. I am excited by this because I am a scientist. And Courageous. it is I am brave. I am courageous. Yeah. I have a zappy thing. <laughs> <laughs> a really cool zappy thing. It's got like bits on it, and I like it a lot. It makes me feel cool. Okay. Hang on. It's not in the right place. Bloody pillow fort. What's it like? 
But that can only mean... Uh, Act. Do some acting. Come on, wake up. Do it better. Do it again, but better. <laughs> That's preposterous. I like the word preposterous. It's a nice word. It's fun. That's preposterous. I'm going to use it more in general. There's a lot you don't know about me, Captain. They don't call me Vicious Veil for nothing. I think I'm also conscious of trying not to do They don't call me Vicious Veil for nothing. Which is making me do it more, I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cross-referencing. Get those interlopers! Aha, no outtakes for you. I do everything right on the first take. Aha. Uh, and now on to the worried soundings of babies. Of course you'll be able to tell that these are meant to be worried sounding because I'm such a good actor. <clears throat> the, the baby. Honestly, this is weirdly therapeutic. We can delete a bunch of these, right? Because this is we can, painful. Yeah.